Hey buddies, you thinking of starting your own podcast? Why not use Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast, and here's why. First off, it's free. Secondly, you have creation tools to record and edit right from your phone or computer. Third, Anchor distributes for you. You can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Fourth, make money with no minimum listenership. And finally, you have everything you need for a podcast all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, the world has still gone nutty, buddy, buddy. Even downright cruddy, buddy, buddy. We shall miss the past, buddy, buddy. But there's still buddy cats. No, don't be nutty, go meet everybody. Here on Buddy Cast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the founder and host of BuddyCast, Nick Sorensen. Welcome to yet another episode of your favorite podcast, BuddyCast. I'm your host, Nick Sorensen, and joining me today is a very, very special buddy, my new buddy, Caleb Quay. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, thanks. Awesome. Glad to hear. Glad to have you on the show. Um, let's let's start from the beginning. You're a guitarist. How did you learn guitar in the first place? Well, uh, you know, I was born into a musical family. Um, my father was a professional musician, jazz musician. And uh, on his side of the family, we have five generations of musicians proceeding. Um and so it was just a very rich musical environment when I was growing up because my dad was good friends with some of the greatest jazz musicians in the world uh, of that time. Hmm. So they used to come around, you know, my father used to do shows with them when they would tour in England and he was well known in England, you know, doing you know, TV and radio and stuff. And so these guys would come around to the house and because my father would cook a good meal for them while they were on the road. And uh, so, you know, I had people like Dizzy Gillespie bouncing me on his knee when I was about four years old. You know, my dad was good friends with Charlie Parker. So all of these amazing musicians would come through the house. And so I just grew up listening to this, this amazing music. And that's all I ever wanted to do was be a musician. You know, my father taught me to play the piano when I was four years old. That was my first instrument, and then drums when I was seven, and then picked up the guitar when I was 12. And he was a multi-instrumentalist as well. He played piano, drums, guitar, sang, you know, wrote songs. So, you know, it's a DNA thing, let me put it that way. Yes. It sounds like your father was a really good buddy to you, you know? Yeah, well, for a while, until he split. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Ah. Uh -huh. Yeah. But um, so you've mentioned all these great, you know, all of these great musicians and everything. And you yourself have worked with some great musicians, including Paul McCartney, Holland Oates, Mick Jagger, and Elton. How did you find those opportunities? How did those opportunities arise for you? <laughs> well, um, let's start with Elton. I mean, we met when we were teenagers. I was 15. He was 16. He's just over a year older than me. So we were fresh out of high school and working in Tin Pan Alley in our uh, respective jobs. And um, that's where I met him. Tin Pan Alley was a place called Denmark Street. Mm -hmm. which was the heart of the uh, music publishing uh, era at that time. So, uh, and I was working down the street at this place called Paxton's, which was a wholesale music distributor. So my job was to go to Denmark Street, go to all the publishing houses and get their orders for sheet music, for their, their stockpile of sheet music that they would sell. So uh, Mills Music, which is where Elton, who was then Reg Dwight, was working at the time. So that's where I met him. I, you know, went in there and, you know, uh, um, took his orders and stuff, you know. And first time we met, he made me a cup of tea, which is most gracious. And that's where we bonded over a cup of tea as teenagers. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
So that went on for a little while. And then I got a job at Dick James Music. He formed a band called Bluesology, went out on the road. And I got a job at Dick James Music. And in a very short space of time, they, they had just started to build their own recording studio. And Dick James Music, for those that don't know, Dick James was the Beatles music publisher. Mm. This was the biggest publishing place in town. At the time, the biggest publishing house on the planet because everybody wanted to get in at Dick James Music, you know, get their demos recorded and all this kind of stuff, you know. So things were bursting at the seams in London at that time. And uh, our office was right next door to um, Andrew Oldham, who was the Rolling Stones manager at the time. And so he'd set up the first independent record label in England called Immediate Records. So there was Dick James and there was the Stones right next door to each other, you know. And uh, so it was, that was the happening place, you know. And so I was a young kid, you know, I got the job there when I was uh, 15. And uh, in 1965, I started there, uh, late 64, 65. And um, yeah, and so they're building a studio. And Dick's son, Stephen James, was running the studio. But he wasn't going to be, that wasn't going to be his you know, long-term job. He was being groomed to eventually take over his father's company. So um, they recognized that I had some musical talent and I really wanted to get in on the studio. So I was helping Stephen with things in the studio. And uh, in a short space of time, they let me handle the studio. So I was running the studio. I was the A&R guy for Dick James Music and their, their new fledgling label uh, when I was, by the time I was 17. Nice. Oh, yeah. Nice. I yeah. love, the work. I love the work with Dick James, you know. I'm sorry? I love the work with Dick James, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Now, speaking of Dick James, everyone has heard about him if they've seen the movie Rocket Man. Just yeah. a quick uh, question. What were your thoughts on that movie? I didn't like it. Oh. I thought it, I'll just be very honest with you and say it's full, yeah. of, full of BS. Yeah. There hey, we like honesty on the show. Yeah, there was so much historically wrong and mm -hmm. also, I would say, ethically wrong. Like, so speaking of Dick James, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, you know, we had our artistic disagreements with mm -hmm. him because he was old school. He, he was from my father's generation. He was big band stuff, you know. And uh, so um, he, he was always wanting things to be quote unquote commercial, you know, uh -huh. and we were trying to do something different. <laughs> but um, in terms of the kind of person he was, the character that, that was portrayed in the movie was absolutely polar opposite. Mm. Dick James was a gentleman, old school gentleman. You know, businessman, gentleman. You never heard an F-bomb come out of him. No curse words, nothing like that at all. He was a gentleman. And I can honestly tell you, he was like a father to us. Because mm -hmm. without him, we wouldn't have had our careers. He gave us the opportunity to get in that studio, you know, and, and work this stuff out, you know. So I personally am forever grateful to dick james mm -hmm. you know, because he gave me the opportunity i'll just speak for myself he gave yeah. me the opportunity to learn my craft which that's is what, which is what i did at that studio yeah and like i said we like honesty on this show i like that you said hey look here's the here's the movie portrayal here's the real story you know mm -hmm. here's the behind the scenes like here's and it's good to know that someone was that gentleman someone was the person who gave you that opportunity to give yeah. you yeah, that opening wasn't, you know, he believed in you that he let you put your foot in the door rather than just absolutely. another, yeah. rather than just another, oh, another startup band next. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. No, he was, he was good there. It was great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you have any, audience appropriate, of course, do you have any like stories from your, um, from your time working with all these bands, like working with Elton, working with uh, Paul McCartney, like any well, that stand out to you? 
gosh, well, working with Elton. So Elton came back into the picture. Like he'd gone on, he'd gone on the road with Bluesology. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. I didn't see him for about yeah, around a year. So nine months to a year, something like that. So while he's on the road with Bluesology, I'm working at Dick James and, you know, running the studio, blah, blah, blah. One day, uh, a guy that we knew, uh, still know, Ray Williams, he bought him around. Ray Williams was the uh, A&R guy for Liberty Records. Mm -hmm. Looking for talent, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, Ray Williams bought, because Liberty didn't have their own studio. So Ray bought him over as he would bring other artists over to do their demos at, at, at our studio, Dick James Studio. So one day Ray brings him in, you know, and um, I'm setting up the mic. It's just a piano and voice demo, you know. And when he brought him in, says, I didn't recognize him because he'd grown his hair long, you know, he'd lost mm -hmm. his weight. He's looking a bit more hip and everything. <laughs> he'd been on the road, you know. And at first I didn't recognize him. And I was busy setting up stuff, you know. And he was, he recognized me. And he was, he had his, he's leaning on the piano, hiding his face like this, as if to say, oh, no, it's him. Yeah, because <laughs> before I used to make fun of him, you know, he was fat and, you know, there was a guy, a comic strip in England called Billy Bunter. Mm -hmm. It's crazy, you know. And uh, so, you know, he looked to me, he used to look like a bit like Billy Bunter with his glasses, short, fat guy, you know. So he's like hiding from me. He can't believe he's landed in this studio and, and, and I'm there, you know. <laughs> so all of a sudden I turned and looked and I went, oh, wait a minute. I know you. It's Reg, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So... So we hooked up there. So we did this demo. That's where it started. And um, uh, we did the demo. It's piano and voice, you know. And we decided then that we thought that, you know, his piano playing was great. Singing was, was good. But the lyrics were weak. We decided he needed a lyricist. So that's when Ray put the ad in the uh, New Musical Express, which is a British um, music paper, for... Uh, request you know for for a songwriter for a lyricist and that's when bernie Taupin responded to that to that uh that ad in in the yes. paper you know and the rest as they say is history exactly the most dynamic duo in music combo you know yeah it's amazing and it was unusual we loved you know then and after that you know as, as things you know when bernie came in the picture and and reg and i started to hang out you know uh, we had a common interest in music. We spent all our money buying records, listening to records and discussing ideas. We we basically, we were two teenagers mm -hmm. that ate, slept and breathed and dreamed music, making this music, you know. That is awesome. Yeah, and, and we loved going into the studio. We couldn't wait getting in the studio. So, and it was an interesting arrangement because Bernie, you know, the two of them, they never sat in the same room together and wrote a song together. Mm -mm. Bernie was living up in the north of England in Lincolnshire, and uh, he would send in a batch of lyrics in the mail. Mm -hmm. Reg would get the lyrics and figure out, you know, what he liked and, and, and come up with these songs, you know. So then he'd call me, all hey, I've got some lyrics of Bernie. I've got the, da, 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 come around here. I'd go over to his place, listen to the song. Okay, when can we get in the studio? Okay, let me get time, let me book some time. And we just couldn't wait to get in the studio. You know, mm -hmm. stuff, you know, that is awesome. Now, just like it's been told, you know, um, you would get the lyrics, you would hear the tune in your head, or uh, Elton would hear the tune in his head, yeah, and be like right there. You know, were you able to do that too? Like, were you able to play off of Elton and say, like, okay, if you're going this way, I'm gonna go with this? Sure, sure. We had great music chemistry. And I think one of the reasons for that is because piano was my first instrument. Mm. So, you know, I play piano. So I could know where, you know, I knew where he was going. So it makes it easy. So out of that, you know, we just had this, I guess, musical friendship, you know, this musical yes. chemistry. It wasn't work. It was just fun, you know. Yes. Immediately he starts playing. It's like, okay, you're there, you're there, I'll be here, and here we go, you know. So mm -hmm. I was able to add, you know, my guitar embellishments to his compositions very easily. It, it was a lot of fun. Things were done quickly. 
beautiful. I love I love the chemistry story. Now, yeah. follow up question: Do you still keep in contact with any of them today? Like, do you still talk to Elton or um, Ray or Bernie or anyone today? I'm in contact with Ray. I'm in contact with Ray, not Bernie or or Elton. Okay. In a little while, they they live on another planet these days. Yeah. <laughs> totally understandable. Well, see, Ray, tell him Nick Sorensen from Buddy Cast says hi, you know? Okay. <laughs> I've been trying to get him on the show for ages now, but. Oh, Ray? You'd be trying to get Ray on the show? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'll, I'll let him know. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. If he gets a if he gets another message from a Nick from BuddyCast, just let him know it's legit, you know? Okay, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. So what about a story about your work with uh, Paul McCartney? I'm also a big Paul McCartney fan, you know? Yeah, um, that was basically, again, back in Dick James' studio time. And mm-hmm. um, I used to record some demos for them. I also used to record – so this is now – uh, 66, 67 period. So they're Beatles. They're huge. They're, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they would do these um, uh, Christmas records for their family. Mm-hmm. So they would go into a studio and clown around in the studio and, and whatever. So one of those Christmas records was done at Dick James Studio and I engineered it. So I had all four Beatles in the studio doing that, you know, with Brian Epstein and Jeff Emery. I mean, it was it was just, you know, crazy stuff but it was fun and um but it was like when they walked in the studio it was like the four gods of the earth just strolled into the studio and they're all dressed in their sergeant pepper psychedelic stuff you know so it was like whoa what in the world <laughs> stop the presses here unbelievable you know so um you know like they're what what is it um i am the walrus kind of outfits that that mm-hmm. whole psychedelic stuff you know the fur coats and lots of colors and stuff, you know. So that was fun. And McCartney, I got to work with him on a project he was producing for his brother, Mike, Mike McGear. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's <laughs> an interesting story. We were in the studio. This was on the day that it was announced into the press. So it was a Sunday morning, it was a Sunday morning newspaper when McCartney announced to the world that the Beatles had taken LSD. Mm. That was something. So I wake up in the morning and I'm living at home. My mum brings me a cup of tea and she brings me the morning paper. She said, have you seen this? And I look at the paper, there's big, you know, McCartney on the, on the, on the <laughs> newspaper talking about LSD. And I'm going, I'm thinking, wait a minute. I'm in the studio with him today. This is crazy, you know. So I get on the train, go to the studio, and I come out the train station, which was just down the street from from the studio on New Oxford Street, and there's a crowd of people screaming and shouting and hollering outside the studio. They'd found out he was going to be in the studio. Police are there, you know, and I've got to get in the studio. I'm the guy, I'm, I'm engineering this thing, you know, so, and I knew some of the Beatles folks, you know, roadies and, you know, the management crew from Epstein's office. I said, hey, can you get me in? <laughs> I've got to do the session, you know. It was I got to go to work today. Yeah, yeah, i got work today. Can you get me in there, you know. So it was absolute madness. I'll never forget that day because it, it, that announcement just rocked, rocked England, I guess, most probably the rest of the world as well. Mm-hmm. That was a crazy day. And so I walk in the studio and there's McCartney sitting there with his Epiphone Texan guitar, the same guitar he used to on the, the song yesterday. Mm-hmm. He's sitting in the studio on a stool dressed in got his caftan and colours on it, just very peaceful. And there's all this madness going on around him. And he's like in the middle of the what do they call it? In the in the eye of the storm, you know, kind of the mm-hmm. thing. You know? Where it's all calm, you know, he's all calm and says, Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, cool, man. Yeah, let's do this, you know. What a day, unbelievable. And uh, the end of that day, the end of that day, because we went on into the night, you know, we must have finished about 11 o'clock at night, and I'm cutting uh, acetates. He wanted to take some demos home with him, you know, what we've done. So I'm cutting acetates, you know, and then he said, Would you like to come over to my place for something to, to eat? You know, I know you've had a long day. I said, yeah, wouldn't mind that be great. So he drove me in his Aston Martin. I was like, oh, my God, this is, 
I was about, I don't know, 18 years old, 17, 18 years old at the time, you know. He said, yeah. So he drove me to his house, which is just across the street from, it's in St. John's, we're just across the street from um, uh, EMI Studios, you know. And I go in there and there's all these people in there and they're watching and he, and he starts, to, he said, hey, I've got something I want to show you. And it's the, the video clip. They had shot some video from the recordings of um, Sergeant Pepper. Ooh. Yeah. And this is, so this is just before Sergeant Pepper came out. So nobody had seen this before. And I'm watching this go, oh, my God, you know, what is this? So that was amazing. And then he drove me back home. To, to my home in Finchley because I'd gone to the studio on a train. I didn't drive. He drove me back home. Just how I'm driving back home, you know. It was a lot of fun telling my friends that story the next day, you know. And how many of them believed you? Oh, they believed me. They believed, they knew because they, they knew I'd had him in the studio. You know, they, they, oh, they good, were good. freaked out. They were freaked out. One of the Beatles, you went to his house, yeah. you had food there, you know. They wanted yeah. to know everything. What cigarettes was he smoking and this, that, and the other? You know, it was amazing. Fun yeah. Time. I remember a story. Paul was on this show. It's like, a, it's called like Carpool Karaoke or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was he was telling a story about how, he, like, his house would always be mobbed with people outside. Yeah. So one day he put on a disguise. Like, he put on a little mustache, put on a top hat, like a baseball cap. Sunglasses and everything, and like strolled outside. Was like, okay, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it. And then his neighbor goes, "Hi, Paul." <laughs> and he's just like, "Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah." So, oh yeah, I had to live through some stuff. Yeah, it was. Yes. Well, now, um, going forward to today, you are now a pastor. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you lead us down your spiritual journey of how you made that decision? How you became? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, let me start by saying this as exciting um, as the, the the music industry can appear to be. Mm -hmm. There is a certain excitement about it. No question about it. I mean, if you were to ask me, did I have fun? Oh, you betcha I had fun, you know. But there is also a very dark side to it. Oh, yes. A very dark side to it, and I got caught up in that. I mean, there's really no way you cannot get caught up in that. You know, it, it's uh, somebody once said, uh, when you go into the music industry, you don't have to find drugs, drugs will find you. Mm. It's a very true statement, you know. Mm -hmm. So, I got found, you know, no question about it, especially as a young kid, you know, playing on hit records when I was a teenager, you know. Um, things like, you know, Wild Thing, you you know, the Trogs records. I played on all that stuff, you know. I was one of the behind-the-scenes guitar players of the British Invasion back in the 60s and 70s, you know. And uh, so, you know, I became a very successful guitar player, studio guy. I took Jimmy Page's place in the studios. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he left in – that was in 66 – he had quit um, doing studio work. He couldn't stand it anymore, wanted to do his own thing. I was booked on a session um, for actually for one of Andrew Oldham's artists, a friend of mine, Billy Nichols. And, um, and the, uh, the contractor, because everything back then, it was union contract, you know. <clears throat> Guy would book the musicians, you know, for the producer. So the contractor that Jimmy used to work for, he was there, a guy by the name of David Katz, and he liked what I did. He liked my, I was like new kid on the block, you know, he liked what I did. So he comes up to me at the end of the session, he says, oh, Caleb, I really like your work. He says, I've got all this work lined up for Jimmy Page, and he doesn't want to do it anymore. Would you like to do it? <laughs> I'm 16 years old. I said, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, would I? So he said, well, I need you to do one thing for me. I need you to go join the Musicians Union. I said, wait right there. Done. You know, I shot down the Musicians Union. And I think I might have been the youngest guy to join the Musicians Union back then, age 16. So I joined the Musicians Union, and this guy gave me all this studio work. And that's where my studio career really took off, you know. Mm -hmm. And I loved it, you know. So 
it was a it was an amazing time for a young young lad like me that dropped out of school you know it was just an amazing time all kinds of opportunities opened up and now i've forgotten your question oh yes yes the pastor, yes, the pastor. yeah so it's dark right so yeah i become successful you know obviously elton think elton's things taking off my studio career is taking off i'm touring you know so it gets to gonna wind the clock forward now to 1978 um i'm now playing with hall and oates at that time mm-hmm. and um Elton had folded the big band in in uh, end of '76. In '77, I joined Hall and Oates, um, myself, Roger Pope, and Kenny Passarelli, because um, they had come to see see us on some of Elton's shows. And Daryl really liked the rhythm section, you know. So if, mm-hmm. if we can get these guys, blah 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 blah. So it, we did, and uh, that was things. Then were started to get kind of downhill. Because um, it was very different to playing with Elton. I mean, they were good, but it wasn't the same with Elton. The reason being, with Elton, we had we had personal history together. There was uh-huh. a lot of personal relationship chemistry between myself, Elton, Roger Pope, Davy Johnson, Ray Cooper. We all knew each other for years, been you know in and out the studios for years. So so we were part of the chemistry that made that music, you know. With Hall and Oates, it was different. It was we were just hired guns, you know, and, and that was basically it, you know. And so I started to get really depressed. And especially at the time of um, you know, when we were touring with Elton, uh, so what 75, 76, that's when he was the hottest thing on the planet, you know. Uh-huh. Stadiums every night. It was a four-hour show with five encores at the end. I mean, it was just, you know, you couldn't get it any bigger. You know, it was amazing. And then when you to come down off of that was very difficult. You know, and so I started to get depressed, you know, and I'm thinking, this is not, you know, and it's a weird, it's a surreal situation because you've got people saying on one hand, oh, man, you're really great. This is great. You've really made it. And inside I'm thinking, I ain't made nothing. There's got to be something else here. This is not, (laughs) this is not what it's all cracked up to be, you know. Uh And um, so one day, 1978, on my 30th birthday, which is October the 9th. Hmm. Uh, yeah, same day as John Lennon. I know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a good day. Yes. Yeah. But uh, um, we had done a show in Atlanta at the Omni Theater. And right next door is to, to the theater is a hotel, the, the Omni Hotel. That's where we were staying. So after we did the show, we go back to, to the hotel and the band and the road crew uh, decided to throw a surprise birthday party for me. Uh-huh. So they came barging into my room with this big cake on a trolley, you know, and the cake was just covered with all kinds of illegal substances. Let's just leave it right there. And so we partied on all through the night, right? They crawl out of my room around four o'clock in the morning, and I sit down in a chair with my back to the window, just kind of like chilling out. I'm on the ninth floor. I'll never forget the ninth floor. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice speak to me. Yes, I hear a voice. So loud, I thought somebody had walked into my room. I turn around to look. Who's that? Nobody there. And this voice starts talking to me, calls me by my name, and says, Caleb, from this point on, your life is going to be completely different. And nothing's going to be the same for you ever again. At that point, I'm no longer high on the drugs or anything. We've been on the road for six months. I mean, uh-huh. crazy, you know. At that point, I am straight, stone cold, sober, and I'm sat in the midst of what I can only describe to be an electric silence. Just me sat in this room, and in my limited understanding, all I knew was I had been spoken to. I just did not know by whom. So I sat there and made a promise to myself. I said, well, one day I'm going to find out who that voice belongs to. Right. So, you know, pack our bags. We hit the road, do the rest of the tour. 
<clears throat> now, word had gone, this is my 30th birthday, and in rock and roll, you're supposed to be dead at 30, right? Mm -hmm. so, so word had gone out in the industry that uh, Caleb had just turned 30. And I would bump into musicians. I remember bumping into Brian May of Queen. We knew them. O'Hare Airport, Chicago. O'Hare Airport. <laughs> We're changing flights, you know. And I bump into the Queen and talking to Brian, you know. Brian said, hey, I hear you just turned 30. What happened? So I told him the story I just told you. And the response was pretty interesting. It was kind of like, wow, that's really far out. What were you smoking or where can we get some, you know? And this was this happened with a lot a lot of musicians, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I tell them the story, and and it was and my response was like, no, you, you don't understand. This was real. This was a real voice. Yes. And and the thing is that once you hear that, you can't shake it. You can't run and hide. You can't you hear, You can't say, oh no, I never heard that. You know. No, 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 no. I heard this thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and could not shake it. So that was in 1978. Roll the clock on to now 19, uh, 1980, mm -hmm. and I, I meet a friend, a guy I became a very good friend, Chester Thompson, who was the drummer from Genesis along with Phil Collins and Weather Report prior to that, world-class drummer. And I was invited to play with him on a project he was doing. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to play with this guy. You know, So... Started working with him out here in, in California, and um, we became good friends, you know. Mm -hmm. There was something about this guy. I couldn't figure it out. It was like we're the same age. We're in the same business, yet he's not going crazy. Like, I, he's not like everybody else. There's something different about him, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I, used, I didn't say anything to him, but I just used to think to myself, this guy and his wife, they've got something. Whatever it is, I want it. It's like they were at complete peace. They weren't like edgy, you know, weird, you know. They were just very peace and very, very solid, you know, in their, in their approach to life and everything, you know. It was great. So um, one day, we, we, you know, we're doing some gigs and stuff. It gets hard to just wind the clock on here. It gets to 1982. By that time, I am messed up on drugs. I'm selling guitars to buy drugs. It's a joke. You know, I'm not happy at all. Easter day, 1982, Chester calls me up in the morning. He says, what are you doing today? I said, nothing much. He says, why don't you come to church with us today? It's Easter. I said, and it was weird. It was like, I'm on the phone, you know, the old steam phone, you know. And when he said that, it's like the world stopped. And I thought to myself, you know what? I've tried everything else. Why not church? So I said to him, okay, I'll come. I'll come. Yeah. He said, great. He said, me and my wife, will pick you up. We'll take you. Okay, great. So he takes me to this church, church called Church on the Way in Van Nuys, California. And um, <laughs> it was a big church. And... Uh, my only church experience was back, way back in England when I was a kid, playing in some church that was hundreds of years old. It was not a happy place, you know. The only thing happy was me and the other choir boys singing in the choir, laughing at everybody. You know, there was no joy in this place at all. There was no gospel. It was all, you know, religious do's and don'ts. I can't, it takes me to this church. <laughs> We walk in through these doors, go into the sanctuary, you know, where everybody's sitting. And I look at the stage and there's all these instruments up there, drums, bass, guitars and stuff, you know. And I thought, huh, there's no way this can be a church. I thought, Chester's playing a joke on me. He's taking me to a surprise gig. And any minute now, the Grateful Dead or somebody's going to come out of there and blow us away, you know. And so he can see I'm kind of perplexed. Don't worry, just, we'll take, just take a seat here. So we sit down. So they start the worship time, you know, and uh, they start singing what we would call now contemporary choruses. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up on the old hymns years ago. That's all I knew, you know, and they, mm -hmm. they'd faded away <laughs> in the distance, you know. And so they're singing these short choruses, you know. And then I remember they started singing this one song called In My Life, Lord, Be Glorified, Be Glorified Today. And it just keeps repeating, repeating, you know. And uh, 
So as a musician, I'm sitting there listening and I'm analyzing the chord. I mean, that's a nice melody. Yeah, nice, nice chord. This is very nice, you know, and it started to kind of soothe my heart, you know. And in that moment, the same voice that I'd heard in the hotel room back in 1978 speaks to me right there in the midst of that song, calls me by my name and says, Caleb, it's time for you to come home to me today because I have a brand new life for you. Then the light bulb went on. Then I went, uh-oh, now I know who that voice belongs to. That's Jesus. That's when I said yes to Jesus. Easter Day, 1982. That's when it turned around. I love it. As a former missionary, as someone who has traveled the nation, you know, I'm inspired by that glory story, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's that's what did it, yeah. Yes. Now next year, next year will be forty years. Congratulations. That's that is powerful. And you're right, you do hear that voice and you never forget it. Like you know I was in prayer one time, just praying, you know, we had a tough event coming up, and I thought to myself, like, you know, we're struggling because we've been on the road for at least a week and a half, you know, teams getting antsy with each other because you're stuck in a bus with the same five people for the you know you know what that's like oh absolutely yeah your best friends the next day you go your way i go my way let's let that yeah yeah so like i'm just praying i'm like what can we do what's going on all this stuff and i hear this voice that says he only gives his biggest battles to those he knows can handle them oh boy yeah Yeah. he only gives his battles to those he knows he can handle them and i i the same thing i looked around and i said like who said that? Who said that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's when you know it's the real voice. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah so we actually have a few questions from the audience, if you don't sure. mind. Absolutely, that's fine. My buddy Trent here, who is a great producer, he's done a lot of work for BuddyCast. Um, how do you feel about music being produced today? Like, how do you feel about the music being produced today? That's a big question. Uh, boy, oh boy. Um, some of it's great. Some of it I don't like at all. <laughs> but, you know, we get into um, that's when it gets into genres and things like that. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not anti technology when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some decisions have to it depends what what you're going for. And nowadays it's like the sky's the limit. You yes. Know? You can be as expressionist as you want with all kinds of beats and samples and stuff like that. So it really depends what what you want. Now, if you're going more for an analog, natural feel of things, then you have to know what what makes that up, you know. And oftentimes, when it comes to equipment, it's less is more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I'm just kind of like putting it in and giving you bullet points here because yeah. it's a very big very big issue you know um i've taught guitar students and things and and spoken at schools and stuff and and Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of the youngsters will say um how did you guys get that sound back then you know back in the 70s and 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 as you know you know 70s music is still being played a lot in movie soundtracks and what have you you know and um and so my answer was, well, we were actually playing our instruments live in the studio. <laughs> you know, so there was chemistry being generated in the studio, you know. So, um, you know, back then, um, engineers, studio engineers, there was an art to um, recording the room. Mm-hmm. You know, which when you're pressing buttons and you're totally in the digital world, that's out the way. That doesn't mean anything, you know. But so back then, um, things were recorded live, you know. Uh, uh, we were playing live in the room. So the engineer would have to know the room, which part of the room the drums sound best in and et cetera, et cetera. So there was a whole art to that. Gus Sturgeon was really good at that. And, um, and so that's that's how we functioned, you know. But I love, I love, you know, the technology of today. I mean, I'm sitting right here. This is my little studio at the back of my house. I've got logic. I, you know, I do stuff here. I do sessions on the internet. You know, 
So, you know, you can send me a track. I can add my guitar parts to it and then send Ooh. it and they can mix it and do what they want with it. So that's a lot of fun. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, some of the stuff today, it just doesn't sound real. In fact, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and your producer friend might, might be interested in this. I said, have you noticed that when you go back and listen to some of the, the, the singers from the 60s and 70s, so obviously the Beatles, Jagger, you know, uh, Tom Jones, a bunch of these guys, Robert Plant, obviously, strong male voices, strong <laughs> voices. He said, yeah, why is that? I said, well, because they were all trained by singing in clubs that had no PA systems. <laughs> wow. Right? So yeah. you had to, you, you, you had to be able to sing above the band, or you just ain't gonna be heard. Exactly. It was, you know, when I started playing in clubs, there was no it, two little things hanging in the speak, you know, in the ceiling, you know, it was it was a you know, wasn't even thought about, you know. So the old saying was, if you're going to sing, just eat the mic and give it all you got. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's why you hear these voice. you know, you listen to the Beatles, their, their vocals sound like a horn section. <laughs> but you listen to the singers of today and they're all whispering and can you give me a little more compression on the mic and blah, blah, blah. And there's no like, ah, you know, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no energy of jumping on the piano and no. doing the- Doing the handstand, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we used when we used to tour without when I used to tour without, we would do, as I said, we were doing a four hour show. And this is before before he had the operation in uh, yes. Australia. Cord, yep. Up to then, man, his voice was strong all the way to the very end. Mm-hmm. Part of five encores after a four hour show. I mean, it was still it was amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so any and yeah, I've spoken to some people that were at some of those concerts, and they they totally agree. I mean, it was they got their money's worth, you know, big time. Yes. Now speaking of audio engineering, my good buddy here is also an audio engineer and wants to know what was your favorite venue to play. Oh boy, that's a tough question. I mean, everyone is different. Uh, gosh. I'm not sure that I can answer that question, mm-hmm. especially from from a, an audio standpoint, because every venue is different, and especially with you you're dealing with huge crowds, you know, fifty thousand, mm-hmm. hundred thousand people. I'm just like, what? Yeah. You know, sometimes the crowd would be shouting so loud. I'd be standing next to you know uh, Kenny and Dave, <laughs> and we'd have to scream at each other, "What song are we doing next?" You know, because <laughs> we had 80 songs memorized and sometimes, you know, and, and Elton would want to change things up, you know, to keep things fresh, you know. Mm-hmm. And, we next, and the crowd was so loud, they drowned us out, you know. And we had a huge uh, PA system. Mm-hmm. To the point where you're going like, what did you say? As they're right next Absolutely, to you. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're right next to each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Mm-hmm. Our buddy Linda here, who you might remember from the Elton oh, yeah. John call, what was your what was the best show he has done in your opinion? I presume she's talking about Elton. Well, in my opinion, the best show. Uh, one that stands out, I think, would be Earl's Court, mm. which is a venue in London, and there's. Oh, okay. There's, there's yep. video clips of that. Yep. And we have a quick correction. She meant the show that you done. What's the best show that you have done, too? Answer this question and then go to your oh. question. Yeah. Finish your question and then we'll go to your question. We'll go to the question about you. So what's oh, the best show Elton's done? Let's Elton's start. Done, I mean, you know, I remember Earl's Court was really good. It was really good. Um, and there was another one was San Diego. Which I, I think Earl's Court I think was seventy five, and then San Diego was seventy six. Both of those were really good. San Diego and somebody's just um, uh, posted a video. It's out there so they've like re- remastered it or something from the San Diego, mm-hmm. and and it's really good quality. 
And of course, by then the band we'd been touring, so the band was like a well-oiled machine. I mean, it was really, really tight, you know. Mm-hmm. Now to go up the real question: What is the best show that you have done, in your opinion? That I have done. You mean with Elton, or just you? Just you? Like just which one of your favorite shows in personal? Like it, it could be with anybody. Oh, oh, okay. Well, um. For me, I would say one of the most significant things I've done was for five years I worked with an evangelist by the name of Luis Palau, and um, this would be early two thousand. So I'm going to say like around two thousand and three, two thousand four, something like that. And、uh, he would do these huge festivals, and we did one down in Myrtle Beach. Florida,、mm. and it was apparently there was like three hundred thousand people, and、uh, I'm told they said it was the largest, <clears throat> excuse me, the largest、um, evangelical crowd or gathering since the Great Awakening. Wow! And I thought myself. Thank you, Lord, for the honor and the privilege of being able to be part of this. Yes, Amen. Yeah. Now, buddy, I've got three questions for you that I ask all my buddies that come on the show. I don't call you guests; I call you buddies. Okay. The okay, first one. In your own words, what does it mean to be someone's buddy? Does it mean to be someone's buddy?、Mm-hmm. Well, a, a really good, a trusted friend. Someone you can trust, someone, someone,、mm-hmm. someone you know that's got your back, you know. Yeah, of course. Now, part of being a buddy is being a charitable buddy. Before I ask this question, I have a quick question for you, which is: Can I give you a prayer intention that I have? A prayer intention that you have? Yeah. Do I need to write something down here? If you want、there. to, if you want to. But we are holding our fundraiser, a big fundraiser, in on October third. At five、um, p.m. Eastern time,、mm-hmm. for our buddy Lottie here, if you can see her. Oh yeah, Lottie. Okay. Lottie is one year old and is due for some heart surgery in、oh. either October or November. She was born prematurely and has three little holes in her heart that need patched up ASAP. Uh huh. So <clears throat> we're raising money for her to. Help the family out. Whether the money goes to like just family's travel expenses, like having a meal or hotel, or if we can pay for part of the surgery,、right. we just want to help the family out because she's the sweetest little thing. You know, she's always got a smile on her face whenever you see her. She's adorable. She's、yeah. happy. So,、yeah. to all my buddies out there, I just want to plug this in real quick. October third, five p.m. right here on Buddycast, five p.m. Eastern. Right here on Buddycast, we've got a variety show, which actually involves my buddy Trent, who I mentioned earlier. We've got Adam Chester, who works with the Elton John Band now. Oh yeah, okay.、Mm-hmm. We have、um, his name is Bob West. He's the voice of Barney、um, from the Big Purple Dinosaur that's on TV.、Oh, okay, yeah. Yes, we have a bunch of you know we have motivational speakers and we have、um, magicians coming on, so. We're throwing the whole enchilada in there, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And、um, so, just wanted to plug that in. And if you could please pray for a little Lottie, sure, that successful. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which also leads to my question: If you could have our audience donate to one charity of your choice, what would it be, and why? Hmm. Well, you know what? That would be. To my church,、mm-hmm. we have a、um, we have a food bank. We do feed a lot of people, and the food bank we're in the process of expanding it. I'm、mm-hmm. so popular right now. It's the sixth largest food bank in Los Angeles County. Wow! Yeah, yeah, we do. And so where my church is, is it's in a it's in a rough neighborhood.、Mm-hmm. Um, the church is called New Life Pomona. 
if you want to write this down or if you want me to email it to you, whatever. Life. How do you spell the last word? Pomona, P-O-M-O-N-A. New Life Pomona. It's in California. That's it. Yeah. Yep. New Life Pomona. All right. Yeah. And yep. if you want to donate something there towards the food bank, that would be great. Yes. A great cause. It's always, always yep. giving to a church is always a fantastic cause, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. We, so feed, now, we yep. feed like, gosh, 5,000 people a week. Wow. Yeah. It's huge. It's, and that's just a week. That's just. A week, yeah. We have to block traffic and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, buddy, before I ask you, um, before I ask you the ultimate buddy cast buddy question, can I ask, after I ask this next question, are you able to give us a little demonstration of some music? Are you, do you so. have, a, alrighty. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Before I, before we do that, let's go yeah. to the ultimate buddy cast buddy question. Okay. Which is going to be split up into two quick parts. The first part is for anyone who wants to be a guitarist or be a musician, what is your advice to them? <laughs> well, <clears throat> well, obviously, you know, practice is three things. Practice, perseverance, and endurance. Mm -hmm. You got to practice because repetition is everything, you know, and then persevere. Because you will make mistakes, and the only, and then what happens is when you make mistakes, you tend to be down on yourself and get negative on yourself and think, oh, I'm never going to be any good, blah, 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 blah. But keep persevering and then endure it, endurance, you know. Mm. It, and so those three things require this one other thing, a certain amount of obsession. Love it. Absolutely love it. Now, part two of the question. Yes. For anybody who wants to go down a spiritual journey and get involved with the church, whether it's be a pastor or just be involved in any way possible, what advice do you have for them today? You know, a lot of people have been, and I get it, you know, have been hurt by church in the whole, you know, they say, oh, religion, blah, 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 blah. You know, my advice is start reading the Bible. Go to the Bible first. It is the word of God. Mm -hmm. It's been around. It ain't going anywhere. They've tried to destroy it down through the ages. It ain't going anywhere. It's the word of God. You know, so I would start right there because being the word of God, it, it is truth. So here's two things. It, it will not only tell you the truth about, who God is and what he has done. But it will also tell you the truth about who you are and what God thinks about you and how much he loves you because he created you. So that is, that, that's the foundation that you're going to stand on when you come to realize those things and when you come to realize what Jesus came to do to repair some things <laughs> so that you could lift your head up in hope as opposed to looking down in despair, mm -hmm. you know. And there's a thing, you know, it's really important, I think, to, if I can throw this out there, when you read a Bible, in the New Testament, the words that Jesus spoke are printed in red. Now, there's a reason for that. And the, the traditional reason is that um, they... Uh, memorialize if you like the fact that jesus shed his blood for our sins the crucifixion right yes it serves as a visual reminder of that but here's the other thing is that the words that jesus spoke were also he, he never changed his mind about anything he said he shed his blood for those for every word he spoke so not only did he die for our sins, but he died for every word he spoke. That is power, my friend. So let, let me just let me just throw another little nugget in there for you. So, mm. you know, you have the devil, you have Jesus. 
okay? The devil is known as the father of lies. The accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. It all comes from him, right? So, <clears throat> if Jesus had changed his mind about anything that he had said, let me give you one radical thing that he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Now, if he had suddenly changed his mind, let's say at the Last Supper, if he had called the disciples, he said, hey, guys, uh, just got something I want to throw at you. But you remember when I said I'm the way, the truth, and the life, etc.? Well, I've changed my mind. It's Let's just call it smorgasbord. Do whatever you like, and I'll pick up the tab on the other side. If he had done anything like that, the devil would have had him on a technicality or called him a liar and there would have been no resurrection nope. death, death would have held him in the grave there would have been no resurrection you and i would not be having this conversation today no. it would all be over so mm -hmm. my friend it makes sense to trust in jesus because he never changed his mind about any word that he ever said the resurrection mm -hmm. proves that the words in the Bible, that every word is true. Mm -hmm. End of story. The word is flesh. That's the right. word is flesh. Yep. Yep. So well, buddy. That's my wheelhouse. Yes. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Now, buddy, would you mind if we could end on a little demonstration of your music? Oh, my, 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 my. Let's see. Ooh. Listen to Can you hear this okay? Yep. First started playing the guitar, there's a lot of blues and stuff. But then as I progressed, you know, I got very involved in a lot of English uh, acoustic folk music. So that's where you get something like this. was awesome <laughs> not bad for first thing in the morning i guess <laughs> hey that's when you know you're a true musician you know <laughs> if you can wake up in the morning and you still got it <laughs> so yeah that was from a that tune came from um uh that was the um blue moves album the your starter for up the album and the way that got on the record that was actually a little piece i'd written just for myself just to practice it was a practice piece is what it was <clears throat> and um when we were in toronto recording the album 
were in the studio and Elton said, you know, I'd, I'd like uh, to start this this album off with a, something instrumental. He says, does uh -huh. anybody have anything, you know? So I piped up, I said, well, you know, I got this little little thing here, you know, what do you think? You know, so I played it to him. He said, oh, that's great. Let's go for it, you know. So that's how it ended up on the album. That is awesome. Truly great story and truly amazing job. Sorry, I'm still like in awe of that music, so. <laughs> yes. Well, buddy, it's been real. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on BuddyCast. Yeah. I've learned so much from you today, from the band stories to your faith. It's all been everything I was hoping for. So Great. thank you. Nice. Stick around for a minute. We'll okay. chat for a second afterwards. Okay. But for all of my buddies out there, this is my buddy, Caleb Quay. And Caleb, I have one favor to ask you before we end today's show. Sure. Go be someone's buddy today. <laughs> okay. You're on. I'll do it. Sounds good. Yes. We'll catch you all next time here on everybody's favorite podcast, BuddyCast. Thank you. Well, well, the days are going fast. Buddy, buddy, we've got to make them last. Buddy, buddy, before they've all gone fast. Buddy, buddy, tune in to BuddyCast. Don't feel like it could make it, buddy. Here on Buddy Cast.